Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Good morning. I'm Mark. He's my... Oh, no. I'm not Mark. I'm Michael. (laughs) You've got to get those right. Those are the basics, Michael. (laughs) I'm so sorry. How are you, Mark? I'm all right, thank you. I was sort of existentially troubled by... The brief glimpse of being Michael Chakraverty, but I'm back to being me. I'm glad to hear it. This week, we have a wonderful episode with David Atherton. Also, Mark, I am a massive Radio 4 fan. All I do is listen to Radio 4. I don't listen to music. So I've loved you for a long time. <laughs> oh, that's really lovely. I don't... So longer than he's loved me, probably, actually. That's what I need. I, need. I mean, much as I love music, I need everyone to abandon music <laughs> and just listen to spoken radio. <laughs> Uh, really nice actually talking to David about something different and finding out a bit more about who he is as a person. Really lovely conversation, I thought. Yes, most of your transactions have been quite sort of dough-based, haven't they, until now? Yeah, nice not to talk about eggs or flour. Really thrilling. Yes. And a nice one for you to listen to now. So enjoy it in your ears, have a nice time, and we'll see you in about 45 minutes, do we In think? your ears is the way people are going to listen to it, almost for sure. Yeah. What? <laughs> Someone might... No, 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 it will be the ears. Yeah, no. Largely. Yeah, we don't want to generalise, but probably... Anyway, however you listen to it, please do enjoy it. <laughs> Welcome, I'm Mark Watson, of course. Welcome to an unusually Baker-heavy episode. Yes, we have the thief of season 10, David Atherton. Well, I, I think we said not to use the word thief quite yes, this early. robber. Michael, well, let's ask David himself to uh, introduce himself <laughs> and see whether he considers himself a robber. David, how are you and who are you? Hi, my name is David Atherton and I was the most popular contestant on <laughs> series 10 of The Great British Bake Off. And quite rightly, recognised as the winner. <laughs> yes, the winner. Uh, I'm also a global health advisor for a charity, which I was trained for. <laughs> that might be less well known to a lot of... And listeners. an author as well. Oh, an author as well. Yeah. I guess it's strange because Bake Off, you're an amateur going into it, whereas I always like to talk about my other job because I trained for it and have done it for a while. Yeah, it's probably worth mentioning that anyone who's coming here for Bake Off chat is probably not going to get very much. <laughs> it's not what we're here for, really. There won't be loads of recipes now. No. <laughs> I'd like to say you're a food writer and an author. You publish recipes regularly and you've got another cookbook coming out and you've already got one out. So you're a fairly accomplished food writer and author, I would yes, say. Yes, you've stolen a career, <laughs> yeah. as Michael would say. Yeah, I'm definitely a foodie. I think I've always loved food forever. So yeah, food writer. Let's go with food writer. Michael said this about you, actually. Oh, no. He said that you have an unusual ability to name what ingredient is, you know. Yes, we had like a, what was it, an aloo something sandwich yesterday? What was it that we had? Yes, 
we did at Darjeeling Express. Yeah, it was an aloo sandwich. It was like a curried potato toasty. And there was like a lovely sweet tomato chutney that I would not have identified as being in it unless you had said that it was in it. And then as soon as you had it, I was like, oh yeah, that's what makes it delicious. I like to think of myself as a super taster, although I'm not very good at tasting wine, so that's maybe not true. If you smell wine, you don't taste it. That is true. I like to do both. <laughs> I like it too much. All of us know that. <laughs> super taster would be a brilliant job title. Global health advisor and a super taster. I'm a health advisor and super taster. <laughs> How does one advise globally on health? People won't know this about you necessarily, David. I work for an international development charity. So it's the kind of the big classic charitable health programs you'd see. We work in Africa and Asia. Mm. And so I spent quite a lot of time working abroad in those countries. Those were two continents, but there's countries within those continents. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes. And currently I work at the headquarters in London. And you advise on those campaigns? Yes, yeah. And on the health of our employees and volunteers as well. Yes, I remember you talk about their feces quite a lot. Yes, that's my favourite topic. Number one topic. Are <laughs> oh, you a poo specialist? <laughs> and also for food as well. So like nutrition-wise, I like the microbiome and I like talking about poo. And your gut. Is that the same as a like microbiome? Sorry, yeah. The microbiome is the bacteria and things in your gut, yeah. And you see that in the poo. Yes. Didn't expect us to be talking about this so quickly. It just goes to show every episode of Mankind is different from the last. (laughs) (laughs) Let's crack on with the masculinity and avoid the fecal matter. We'll go back to the gut if we sort of start to struggle, yeah. (laughs) So the first question we ask everybody is a recollection of your first brush with masculinity and what that looked like. So when do you remember first seeing or understanding masculinity as a concept? Yeah, it's a really tough one, isn't it? I mean, partly because memory has to go back quite a long way. And you are quite old. (laughs) Thanks for that, Michael. And it was that extra bit of experience, perhaps, that gave him the edge in the... Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) But my first memory probably is when I was at school and I decided to do ballet dancing, Mm. which, Mark, you didn't think there was going to be spot this early on, did you, in this episode? (laughs) No, but I never know if it's my lucky day. (laughs) Ballet in feces and it's been five minutes. (laughs) That's right, yeah. (laughs) Who knows what's next? Yeah, and someone gave this leaflet at school and I wanted to do it, but I don't even know why I wanted to do it. I didn't want to be a ballet dancer, but I wanted to do it. And I remember everyone telling me that I couldn't do it because I was a boy. And true to form, I was the only boy that went and pretty much the only boy, I think, in the whole of our county that did ballet dancing, which meant in competitions, I did very, very well. (laughs) And I won quite a few things as the only boy. (laughs) But I found it quite strange that people thought that it was only for girls. And then I found it even stranger as I got older, realizing that, I mean, Michael, you might have looked at quite a lot of men's ballet dancing bodies oh yes it kind of is quite masculine out of thought of like those things that people think of very strong yeah it's interesting to me that everyone said you can't do that because you're a boy but you did anyway i mean that kind of speaks to a sort of confidence i suppose yeah in kind of going I'll do it anyway yeah a lot of people at that age are sidelined by the perception that it's just not for me yeah so where did that kind of confidence come from I mean you're a confident guy now but like at the time did you feel confident Uh, I don't think I did because actually I remember because it was at one of these kind of village halls and I remember every single time being terrified that someone would recognize me from my school or even like the boys in that village. And I remember when I would go into the village hall, I would go and sit in the corner behind the curtains until my class started. And I do remember being in classes thinking, oh, what happens if someone looks through the curtain because there's like a snooker hall next door or something. Those snooker guys, famously judgmental. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I just wanted to do it. I think I just knew I wanted to do it. You wanted to do it enough that you were able to put those things aside. Yeah, I think so. What kind of drew you to ballet? I find this interesting because my parents tried many sports on me and I was never drawn to any bounced off you, didn't they? I did do karate for a bit because I loved the belts. They were (laughs) fab, weren't they? I got all the way up to brown. Yeah, what your parents needed to focus on was sports with accessories. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, what drew you to the ballet? What was it about that? I don't know. I think I, because I was very young. Mm. I was a top infant, whatever that is nowadays. And I knew I just wanted to try different things. 
I was one of those fad kids. I wanted to do everything and yeah. I hated it. People tried to make me continue doing it like music lessons. And my parents were really good at just saying basically yes to everything. You can just try it. So when I told my mom, she was like, yeah, sure. And she went and borrowed some ballet shoes from my neighbor next door before realizing you didn't need any ballet shoes. You did it in bare feet when you were that young. So yeah, I don't know. And then I just enjoyed it. Oh, that's a classic case of a parent like rushing out and doing a demonstratively helpful thing, which is actually relevant. Yeah. <laughs> and then it just became a thing. I'm assuming you don't do ballet anymore. You haven't mentioned it recently. But when did you carry on till? Yeah, I actually did my first professional grade. And I don't remember this, but my mum says that I was offered to go to some kind of ballet school down in London. And I said no. But also I went through puberty very late and I was very small. Like I was the smallest guy in the school. And I got to the point where you had to start lifting and things. And that did not go very well. Right. So basically I was going to be on pause until... I developed, which I'm quite glad because I don't think I actually fully actually went through puberty until I was about 20. So I would have been waiting for quite a long time if I'd stuck at it. But it gave you some lovely calves, didn't it? Yeah, I get people in the gym now. The other day, someone came and asked me what my calf routine was. And I just said doing ballet dancing at 10 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Not the answer they were probably hoping for. (laughs) No, definitely not. This came from the idea of masculinity, I suppose. You said that when you were talking about ballet, it didn't feel like it was a masculine or a thing that the boys did. What were boys doing at school? And did you kind of engage with them much? Or did you feel kind of separate from them? After listening to you on this podcast, Michael, I think we share a few things to do with like sport Mm. and school. (laughs) And maybe the common denominator is being gay. I don't know. But I didn't really enjoy those things. But I had a different experience to you because I'm a twin. Yeah. And I was the smallest person in my year and didn't go through puberty till very late, as I said. My twin brother went through puberty before anyone else. He was a foot taller than me when we were 11 years old. Oh, wow. I didn't know this. This is very interesting. Yeah, people didn't even believe we were brothers, never mind twin brothers. And he was such a good rugby player that there was teams that requested that he wouldn't be able to score tries in the second half. <laughs> he was also the 100-meter champion for the county. And so I had this huge twin brother. And so I was kind of protected, although I was made fun of and kind of bullied for being like feminine. People didn't really use gay so much when I first went to school. That's because it was the mid 1800s when you started. (laughs) It wasn't even a thing. Please remember that any joke like this at David's expense is also a slur on me. It's a two for one, Mark. Quite a bit older, presumably, than David. No, but it's fascinating about your twin brother because actually... Yeah, it really is. He sort of embodied all these masculine qualities. Taller, a bit more built, good at sports, all those sorts of things, And right? are you identical twins, by the way? No, not at all. He tries all the time, but not even close. <laughs> he wishes. That's his joke that he said throughout my whole childhood. So I'm glad I'm getting in now. (laughs) This question speaks more to my character than yours, but did you find yourself kind of comparing yourself to him or did others compare? I think that's an inevitable question. That's certainly what I'm interested in. Well, we're both insecure, Mark. That's why. Well, also I have twin siblings, of course, Michael. So twins is a phenomenon that interests me. But I have rarely heard of one twin physically developing much faster than the Mm. other like that. Yeah, we were very different at school. I think we both kind of looked to protect each other. So being non-identical meant it felt like we were more just really good friends because we didn't compete over anything. Because also Paul was incredible at maths and I was really good at art and Paul was really good at science and I was good at music. And so we did each other's homework and looked (laughs) up each other, but we didn't really compete. I think probably some part of me did wish that I was sometimes more masculine, only just because Paul was a lot more popular. (laughs) Although I was in the gymnastics team and this was quite a funny thing as well. I managed to become the sports captain for our year. And that's only because all the boys who went for this title, their vote was with the boys. And it was kind of like diluted between all of them. 
and I just got every girl's vote. So I was a sports captain. <laughs> Splitting the yeah. vote, they call it. <laughs> yeah. So you ended up without much of an affection for sport, still having some of the physique of a sports person and now being an official sports captain. Yeah, and I still quite liked some sports. I like playing tennis and I like gymnastics and things. Competitive baking is a sport, I suppose, as well. Yeah, and competitive baking. And how did you think that your brother viewed you? Was he consciously protecting you or, or was it more just kind of instinctive relationship in the way that siblings can have sometimes? I think it was purely instinctive. He wasn't really much of a talk. Mm. So we didn't really talk. I think it was just pure instinct, yeah. You mentioned bullying. I mean, you said it wasn't a massive part of your childhood, but what kind of form did that take? What were they picking out about you? I went to one of those areas of the country where you had a middle school and then a high school. Mm. Right. Because people listen in America as well. What age, roughly, are you talking about? So the middle school, after you've been to kind of kindergarten, primary, then the middle school is for three years. So it's from kind of 11, 12 and 13 year olds. Right, okay. And then the high school is to do your QCSEs, A-levels, exams. And I was bullied in the high school then. Basically, I was in the closet until I was 30. Yeah. Technically, probably because of religion. But I'm saying that and in high school, I used to turn up to school with eyeliner and nail varnish on every single day. So I got called gay the whole time and had a lot of homophobic remarks. I just didn't let myself believe that I was gay. Did you know? In a sense, people were opening the closet and like rattling around with you in it and you still claimed not to be in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the religious thing gave me this protection because people thought that I was a good Christian boy and good Christians couldn't be gay. So my friends who were Christians, kind of, I had protection there. But at school, I think people just, I don't know what people even think at school. They just pick on people for anything, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Anything that's different basically is a potential opening, isn't it? I can't help asking as usual about how being in a religious background, how that sat in your mind with the dawning realisation you might be gay or, or, or maybe it wasn't dawning at this point. But I suppose what I'm saying is, did you believe that a good Christian boy couldn't be gay at this stage? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I say now, I would say I was quite a perceptive child. I can remember being five years old and understanding it. Yeah. And it could have been even before then. So I knew for a long time. And then I think that I just lived with a huge amount of internalised homophobia. And I still have some internalised homophobia now. And I think the thing that characterized it most for me was I was able from a very young age to put kind of emotions in a box, lock it up. Michael knows I did not cry on Bake Off once. I find it hard to even cry in a film or a book. Whereas Michael, I mean, every week, Michael built his reputation on crying on Bake Off. I did all the crying for everybody. I did more crying than you saw. <laughs> People would come up to you and say, could you just have a cry while I put this in the oven? <laughs> I loved it. David actually came up to me one week. There'd been a disaster and went into the disaster in a tent, you all know. He came over to my bench and he was like, oh, Michael's not crying. It must be all right. And he looked at the carnage and apparently it was so bad I wasn't crying. It was, right, just... it was beyond <laughs> that. Yeah, beyond tears. So David is the opposite you're saying David, yeah. you weren't even consciously repressing emotions it was just what you did yeah and it has definitely damaged me because it's meant that i've not been able to be as emotionally in touch like i think i'm quite an empathetic person but for yeah. example when i worked in intensive care a lot of the nurses used to just joke and say i was dead inside because when my patients died i was very empathetic with the family but i would also be okay next I wouldn't find it upsetting on an emotional level. Were you always like that from a young age? Yeah, and I don't, I've not been to therapy, but I think it was because... You are now, this is what this is, basically. Yeah, well, this is actually an intervention. <laughs> this is. Yeah, I think it was because I had learned to put the emotion of hating myself in a box. Personally, I never had any suicidal thoughts growing up and things like that. And that's because that hate that I did have, I just locked it up. Yeah. Just didn't think about it. It's easy to psychologise now, but where do you think that hatred originated? Just purely from being taught that a certain religion is truth. And that's definitely the religion that my parents followed, which is like an evangelical Christian, was very much, this is so wrong. Mm. Basically, you've got one foot in hell if you're gay. 
I just think it came from that. Like you were taught from such a young age that this is wrong, this is bad. And I just knew, I was like, obviously I did the usual things of like praying, like, oh, can you pray this away? And just thinking, well, that didn't work. So I knew it was just part of me. It's sadly not an uncommon story, but when you say you were taught that, can you expand on what that looks like? Is that at a dinner table? Is that at Bible study? Is that at school? Like, where were you taught it? Or is it just a, a sort of assumption, an undercurrent, yeah, which, which is, is always also equally there. valid as well? Yeah, I mean, if you actually look at Christianity and look at the Bible, it literally mentions what people would call homosexuality about five times. It's not in the Bible, compared to how much it talks about putting women down and all those things. So there wasn't actually a lot that they could teach from the Bible necessarily. Yeah, there's a fair bit of criticism of other behaviours across the Bible, it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but actually, yeah, homosexuality doesn't even feature that much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even things like Sodom and Gomorrah, that's really talking about rape. It's not talking about homosexuality. Mm. And it never talks about a loving relationship between two people of the same sex. But yeah, I would hear it all the time. Like you'd get taught one moment that, you know, you've got to love one another, you've got to love everybody, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing you would hear someone just say, oh, if a gay person was walking on the street, I would walk on the other side of the street. Right. My friends now, I'm friends with a lot of my friends who are Christians and were Christians. And I tell them now, it's like every single day you guys would make jokes and slating remarks about homosexuals and homosexuality. I just don't think they really got that they did that all the time. It was just like a known thing. It's so normalised that you don't even question it or think about it, I guess. What are those relationships like? You're still friends with them, but when you say that to them, how does that go? Well, I'm friends with them because they don't believe those things anymore and they're very, very sad. But they were conditioned to think all these things as well from a young age. And I'm not friends with the people that still do think those things. Yeah. But it's a strange thing because I think with Christianity, talking about masculinity, there's this strange thing in Christianity that it seems to be a masculine thing no matter what. Like you can be what other people regard as quite a feminine man. But if you go to church, everyone in the church sees you as a man. You are masculine. Just seems to be a masculine thing because they put down women so much, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. What do they see? So you walk through the... I was about to say, what do you call them? But they're doors, aren't they, really, to a church? Normally a church has doors on it, yes. My <laughs> I know that you're very uneasy with church jargon, but I think we can agree on doors. <laughs> you walk through the doors and they see you as a man, like you say. What qualities are they ascribing to you? I don't even know. My dad would always say the things are like, I'm the man of the house, therefore I get to decide things. I don't think there's even qualities. Isn't it just that you're a man? Like, you just have all these innate rights. It's status rather than qualities, yeah. perhaps. Yes, yeah. And you're right, David, the church traditionally has been structured in obviously a pretty capital H way. Yes, there's this idea that, you know, the marriage of God and his congregation is like that between a man and a woman. There's always an assumption that it sort of goes God, then men, then women. Just written into Christian orthodoxy in a way you don't even have to think about. And I think that does radiate down to the way that men... Yeah, a scene in the church. You know, it was quite a long time until we even had female vicars. As David says, there's quite a lot more of what we would now call misogyny in the Bible. So I think those things do take a very, very long time to iron themselves out. And also they don't iron themselves out. People have to approach the question of how to make things more inclusive. You would say your dad saw himself as the man of the house. I mean, how did that manifest in terms of your relationship with your family and how your family operated? Yeah, it's very strange because my dad would say things like this, but my mum was definitely the strong and is the strong person in our family. As is always the case. (laughs) Yes, and like ran our household. So that was always a very strange thing for me because you were taught certain things. But my experience was very much that men were weak and men were a bit pathetic. (laughs) It was like the same with all my friends' families. It was always like you could just see that the mums were the ones who were running the households and it was kind of this lie that the men were doing anything really. Mm. You grew up in a family of how many brothers and sisters do you have? It was five of us. So it's quite a large family. Yeah. And you came out quite late to your parents. How did you come out to your siblings? Well, like interesting, my older brother, who was a rebel from the start in terms of religion, like he never really believed anything and would always have big arguments with my dad. I've never told him. This is the strange thing, isn't it? The whole thing of coming out. 
I've never told him, I've never needed to tell him, never felt the need to actually even qualify what my sexuality is. Right. But with my twin brother, who is a Christian, I felt like I had to sit down and like talk it through properly with him. And how was that? It was okay. I've had different reactions from people who are Christian, but my twin brother definitely is very empathetic as well. It was never going to change anything. The thing I found quite difficult was that people would always say, I still love you, which I always just got quite offensive. As if that was in question. Yeah, I was like, great, thanks. (laughs) After I thought about it, I'd be like, guys, love is the most bottom requirement. Like, you're just telling me you've given me the most basic here. Like, where's acceptance? Where's all these other things? Like, that's not enough. Yeah, I shouldn't have to graciously say the love is still there. I mean, was I meant to say thank you? (laughs) What was I meant to say to that? (laughs) Sometimes I ask people who've got a story relatively similar to yours where it, you know, took a long time for them to come out and they found it difficult to live with themselves or in your case, denied a part of themselves just because we have people with all sorts of stories listening and it's a difficult question again but what do you wish someone has said to you I guess or what do you wish you'd known then or thought then all those times when it seemed impossible to acknowledge this part of you it's a sort of what would you say to your old self question I don't know because I think so much of it was me one of the things I'm very proud of my six-year-old self thinking was I remember thinking okay if I'm not going to acknowledge the fact that I'm gay like my sexuality I am not going to let it affect me who I am So hence, I'm going to go for ballet, I'm going to wear eyeliner, I'm going to bake and cook and do all of these things. I knew I was not going to change. And that's why it was quite easy to come out to people as well, because I didn't come out and then suddenly change everything about me with all these things I'd wanted to do my whole life. I'd done all those things. The only thing I hadn't done is allowed myself to admit that I am physically attracted to and want to love another man. You should probably say that you do love another man. Nick might object to want to love. (laughs) I'd do my absolute best to love him. (laughs) (laughs) I try. I think that I would even have friends who were Christian friends who would say like, oh, if you are gay, that's okay. You can come out to me, blah, blah, blah. And I never did. So I think I was quite stubborn as well. Yeah, it sounds as if you were holding it back for reasons other than just what would happen. It sounds as if it was much deeper than that for a start. Yeah, it was a long time as well. Like, why do you feel like it took so long? Was it to do with, I mean, you've lived in Malawi, I believe, and like lots of different countries like that. Was it to do with that at all or not really? Yeah, before I finally just turned away from religion, I still used to think I was a Christian for a long time. And then there's obviously the side of thinking, I didn't want to tell people and then to suddenly think, you've been lying to me all this time. And I'd come out to other people before then. So it was only my parents that I was really waiting until I was 30. And then, yeah, the other big thing was my job. I really wanted to work in international global health. International and global? Well, yeah, some people say either. Oh, so you use both. Why not throw in cosmic as well and be done with it? <laughs> cosmic health. Yeah, cosmic health. <laughs> And so my job kept on taking me to live in places. But I lived in countries that were very homophobic. Like, forget my experience growing up here in the UK. I mean, there's no way you could even say something because it could be very dangerous. Mm. I came back from Malawi when I was 31, I think. So definitely contributed to it. And could you talk about how you came out to your parents? I think it's actually quite a unique way that you did it. Yeah, I wrote them a letter, but not because I wasn't brave enough to speak to them. But because I knew that I was gay, I'd spent my whole life. And I knew that when you tell something and somebody's shocked, they might respond in a way that if they'd had a few minutes to think about it, they might not respond that way. And actually that response could be something that I hold on to for a long time. And so, yeah, I wrote them a letter and then said in the letter, don't even speak to me first. Speak to my twin brother, Paul, first with any questions and then come and speak to me. That's great. A coming out that includes a sort of all correspondence to this address type situation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Letters, by the way, Michael, are a form of communication we used to have. Oh, yes, before the internet. That's right, quite (laughs) long-winded. But as David says, it does have its advantages. It's nice that your brother, Paul, was so involved in that process. Was he kind of like a rock for you at that time? Yeah, I'd already had quite a few conversations with him because he needed to understand these things. Right. Because I think one of the problems with 
masculinity is this kind of innate privilege to it so that you don't have to think about these things mm. so a lot of the things i was talking to paul about he'd never even considered before because he didn't it's ignorance but it's kind of because you don't really have to it's not come into your life so you got engaged to nick last year it was very gorgeous as well because apparently david cried can you believe it happened <laughs> i guess if you're ever gonna do it then the yeah. ice queen broke but your instagram post was really touching and moving and you mentioned that he was kind of the person who taught you how to love yourself which is a lovely thing to say and quite a huge thing to say yeah very touching how did you learn to love yourself i suppose is the question i think that it definitely was nick but also it was nick through the wonderful therapy of brene brown right who i don't know if you know about brene brown but she i mean i think her ted talk is still the second most watched ever really brilliant yeah she's in the u.s and she is a specialist in shame and vulnerability and she's brilliant because she's not one of these self-help Americans who says, be like me, do all these wonderful things. She struggles so much with it herself. But I mean, it's transformative, her books on shame and vulnerability. And I just realized that I hated being vulnerable. Like mm. this is one of the reasons I applied for Bake Off was I was too used to doing the things that I was good at and too used to doing things. Oh, I'm good at this. And also you're just looking you were bad at, but still one at it. Thanks. Yeah, that plan really backfired, <laughs> David. <laughs> <laughs> this is true I didn't think of this I'm not very good at reflecting <laughs> <laughs> you are no you are just to be clear David is a very good friend <laughs> oh I know I'd be very uneasy by now if this was genuine <laughs> can you name a specific book David or a specific resource other than the TED talk because this does sound like something a lot of people have benefited from yeah yeah she's written three books and the first one's called Daring Greatly I believe oh I've heard of that book yeah. yes and then there's one called Rising Strong and then there's another one and you kind of need to read them all and they're really simple very easy reads I think Nick's read those books about 30 times. He's like bought them 100 times for other people. Nick did psychology at Union. Both his parents are psychology professors and his sister's a psychology professor. So when I say I haven't had therapy, I definitely feel like I've had therapy now. Yeah. <laughs> there was definitely a thing, I think, as well as kind of internalizing the hate and being gay, I also didn't allow myself to love myself. Like I mm. didn't allow myself. I think sometimes some gay people kind of are slight overachievers because they're always trying to do something that will impress themselves. Yeah, that's a very interesting insight. So I was always trying to do something that I would be impressed with. And then you always fall short. Yeah, I recognise quite a bit of this in myself, even though I'm not gay. And it's true, isn't it? That if you're always trying to accomplish things in order to persuade yourself that this next one is the thing where I finally will feel good about myself, then obviously it's the whole wiring that's wrong. It's not about individual things you've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You yeah. can never win that battle. Yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thinking back to when you were younger and you were in the closet, but you were still kind of this confident, outgoing man. Who did you look up to as role models? Who did you see as people that you could aspire to be more like? I was thinking of this. It's actually quite hard to think of men. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. It doesn't have to be men. People often do find it hard to think of men and that tells its own story. Yeah. I mean, one though, you will be happy now, Mark, because this is spot. One is Roger Federer because he is God. (laughs) I did learn. I changed my religion. (laughs) Roger Federer is God. Right. You turned away from the more mainstream God and went for the uh, multi-grand slam winner. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And one of the things I loved about Roger Federer was I loved tennis when I was a tiny kid. And there was all these men who were always really angry. People like John McEnroe, who Michael have never heard of. No. Is that true? No, I never heard that word. Oh, dear. <laughs> Sorry, David, a brief moment there as I confronted my mortality yet again. <laughs> very quickly, John McEnroe was a very famous American tennis player, but he became famous for having these tantrums and yelling at the umpires right. and smashing his, all that business. Kind of like a pantomime villain of Wimbledon while also being a great player. With yeah. you. Okay. Uh, temperamental left-hander. Carry on. And he potentially even won matches through intimidation. Like There was probably an edge with that intimidation. And I loved because Roger Federer came along and actually with Rafael Nadal as well. And they were serene. Like they changed the way that, ten- I mean, you've got awful people like Djokovic coming along now, but like for a long time, tennis players would aspire to be like Nadal and Federer, who were just so calm. I was just going to say, I was going to use the word serenity about Federer. He's always got a little bit of a smile on his face. He always looks like he's having quite a nice time. He doesn't look too worried if he loses either. Yeah, and he like keeps his emotions kept inside in terms of aggression. Like there's no kind of like that horrible sports aggression where, half of the win is down to you just wanting to like kill or eat the other person. It comes down to competition, doesn't it? The troubling aspects of masculinity can come down to competition, whether yeah. that's in sport or just in life, where they're trying to compete with one another to become better. I mean, I think we all can relate to that in some sort of sense, but in sport, it's particularly pronounced, perhaps, and that competitiveness yeah. turns into aggression. And tennis is a very brutal environment because it's just you versus one other, you know, you're staring at each other for hours across. So it's like, very, like we do, actually. When very we much like podcasts. this, actually, yeah. yeah. This is essentially <laughs> tennis. And so it would be very easy to see why that turns into aggression and it is as david says quite unusual to meet someone who is that skilled at basically you know hand-to-hand combat like tennis is but with no apparent malice. yeah but it's interesting though that the role model aspect of it that you're talking about david is that you were kind of saying these people were role models because they were in opposition to what you saw as toxic masculinity yes definitely yeah and who else would you say? I mean, it doesn't have to be men. It could be women. It's just qualities, I suppose. Really pleased with Federer, by the way. It's, just, <laughs> such an, it's interesting to me that it often is really unexpected people that have inspired yeah. our guests, you know. I mean, he is a god, so it's quite easy for him <laughs> to take that pedestal. But the other person I would say was my art teacher, because I was in like a rural Yorkshire school, and it seemed that the male teachers, everything was about shouting. They controlled the class through shouting and intimidation and punishment. I've heard this about the North. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But my art teacher managed to keep control and like everyone loved him and his classes, but he was just kind. He was really nice and kind. And he he kind of had that thing with a teacher that's quite rare where the students didn't want to misbehave because they didn't want to disappoint him because he was just so Mm. nice. And I loved art at school. Art was my subject. And I don't know if it's because I gravitated towards this teacher. And I was thinking the other day, I don't know where he is. And I don't know if he was gay. And if there was something with that as well, but I didn't think it at the time. I just... Have you said the name? Sorry. 
Mr. Knight. Mr. Knight. I always like these people to have their moment of kind of, well, I was going to say immortality. That's a bit of a grand term for a podcast, but it's about the third or fourth time someone's name-checked a teacher who in some way enriched them. And I always think it's nice to take those moments. I think we all have them, yeah. And it's important to show that teachers can make such a vast difference in our lives. And even if he wasn't gay, you saw yourself represented in a male figure when you were younger, which you might have needed at that time. And I think we all have a teacher, mine with Mr. Fraser, who were like that when we were younger. And none of them have first names. <laughs> no, that's true. They're always just Mr. or Mr. Something. So, Mr. Knight, I've got no idea what your first name was. No, no, you don't want to know their first names. It's, it's unholy. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about media. I mean, lots of young people now, and when we were younger, although there was probably um, slate drawings at the time for you. I don't think that was necessary. Carry on with your question. Please. Two for one, Mark. It's pleasing. <laughs> what kind of representations of men in media did you remember seeing when you were younger? And does that feel different now? Yeah, I think it feels very different now. I mean, it's a strange thing that I saw gay men as being like the bastion against masculinity, even though that's just looking at a very simple representation of what masculinity is. Yeah. But I saw that. And when I was younger, I was so excited to see like the first gay character on EastEnders or something like that. Yeah. And it was really great to see people on TV. But although it was kind of nice, they were also... Uh, like caricature yeah. things. But, and also there wasn't the internet, so there definitely wasn't social media. I think nowadays it's a lot more nuanced. I think you can follow the right people and like hear these brilliant voices. Whereas when I was a kid, it was very much, there was just certain voices that were heard and they usually were very masculine men. Yeah, we've talked before, haven't we, about how it feels like there's been a healthy transition from you can have gay guys on TV, but they have to be the gay one on TV into... The best friend. Yeah, exactly. The best friend or the immensely camp entertainer or that one that everyone's like, oh, well, of course, the thing about him is he's gay. Whereas now you can just have someone that's, you know, like a gardener or a chef and is also gay. And that seems like a progress. Yeah. It's been an eye-opener for me to how often phrases like internalised homophobia have come up in this. I don't think until I did this podcast, it would have fully dawned on me that many gay men have lived with a sort of hatred of the idea of gayness, which is then transmuted into a dislike of themselves. And that homophobia can still be residual, even if you are gay and admit that you are. It's a complex thing to get your head around. Also, this is why it's so important to start with kids. Like this is the yeah. thing that I've come to recognize is how many of the things that I've issues with myself have come from being a child. Yeah. And then having friends now who have young kids and then hearing them say things and just cringing, thinking, don't say that. Yeah. Like, why did you just say that? Why did you praise a little boy for being manly and whatever? Yeah, taking something like a man and all that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't get it. Actually, that leads really nicely into the final question, which is for children or for young people or perhaps toy bears, if you were thinking about a particular shop and an analogy. What three qualities would you build into? Of course, David's heard the podcast. It's, David it's much more relaxing talking about the bears when we know that I someone gets I always feel a bit it. tense talking about You always look tense as well. I sometimes can't make eye contact with you when yeah. you start the build a bear thing. <laughs> but in terms of children and having children and bringing up the next generation, I mean, my heart just bursts when I see a young person and their family refer to somebody else and his husband or her husband or use they, them pronouns because I feel like the world is opening and that yeah. child is seeing more diverse identities around them and that hopefully means that they will feel more comfortable in the world around them i'm rambling so much this question hasn't even been asked yet <laughs> everyone should know what's coming what three qualities would you embed within <laughs> a child or a young person to let them live in this world as it needs to be well i've heard this podcast quite a number of times would you say you're a fan i'm a fan i'm Thank definitely you. a fan we always force people to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and i can't move away from saying the first one as being empathy yeah. good there's a reason why it keeps coming up i think yeah yeah it's just one of the things as well i think i was quite old before I really fully understood what empathy even was. Yeah. Um, I always thought it was sympathy. So what would you say is the difference? I think sympathy I see is like feeling sorry for someone and putting yourself in that position, whereas empathy 
you can see them in that situation and you can feel right, for them yeah. in that situation. Vempathy. I don't know what the definition is, but that's why I think of it. No, that feels right to me, but it was just nice to hear what you see it as, if you know what I mean. I think that's right. I think the key difference is that empathy is the faculty of understanding what is going on in the We could just Google it, heads but I like that we're all just trying to... <laughs> no, we, we've decided we'll just reinvent the dictionary instead. <laughs> so empathy is one of your qualities. Hang on, I'm going to Google it now, just to be clear. You go ahead, Michael. Uh, the definition. Do dictionary corner over there. It's the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. I mean, thank God for that, because we've been using it to mean that yes. for about more than 20 episodes now. <laughs> I actually prefer David's, though. It's about seeing them in their shoes, and therefore yes. you're able to see the world from yes. their perspective and how they experience it. And that's why you tried to get the word of empathy going. I well, saw what you did. It wasn't me. You. I didn't coin empathy. <laughs> oh, okay, previous guest, Jamie Windust, it was their idea. You're right, you're right. Um, but yeah. empathy is a chapter in their book. It's fair. That's right. We've spent a lot of time on the first of the three qualities you're going to build into your child. Well, the second one might be just long because I've decided to pick something that's kind of a lot of different things, probably. Style. But emotional intelligence. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very important, I think. Yeah, just because I really hate the fact that when people talk about someone being intelligent and intelligence as if it's like something amazing. I mean, it's good, but it's like a lot of it's you're born with it. Like emotional intelligence is so much more impressive and you can learn it and you can practice it. And for that, I think you see it so often when you've got bad relationships at work and you really see what bad emotional intelligence can be like. Yeah, absolutely. But that's probably quite a wrong one because that's probably lots of qualities. Stand by your word. I we think had that's a, a good one. Previous guest, Bethany Black, who talked about how we massively undervalue well, what she called EQ, wasn't it? Yeah. It, um, at the expense of IQ, that we're far more interested in academic intelligence than emotional intelligence. Yeah, that Cambridge degree doesn't mean anything, Mark, as long as you're <laughs> nice to everybody. It's all I've got, Michael. Carry on. <laughs> The last one, I was going to do one where I actually remove one, Ooh. and then I just put the word inhibit at the start of it. So it's kind of like an inhibitor to the sense of male privilege. Uh, oh, yeah. that's a good one. We've not had someone put an inhibitor in a bear before. Because <laughs> 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 I think if you just thought, like, it's really bad because I'm throwing someone else under the bus. But when I look at, like, my brothers and my dad and, like, see how other men kind of, like, went through their lives, so much of, like, the negative things they have and the fact that they were ignorant to certain things was because of their like male masculine privilege. Yeah. Uh, and if they didn't have that, they might be able to experience things differently and see things differently. I think that's a really nice idea as well, because I think the inability to see privilege sometimes is what prevents change and progress. We've spoken a lot about being gay, but I think a lot of gay men don't see their privilege because while they are part of a minority, they are more privileged than others in the community. And I think it's relevant for everybody to kind of just kind of remembering where they are in relation to other people. Yeah, and I also think that's a really tough one because when you're part of a minority or just a group, I hate when people always put women in a minority when they're actually a majority, but they are marginalised. When you're part of a marginalised group, I see that people then actually oppress other people. Because <laughs> I saw that obviously in various African countries I lived in, where, you know, they would fight against all of the oppression that they had, but then they would be quite happy to you know, kill someone because they were gay or put burning tires around them and things. So yeah, I always think it's really important to like check your own privilege all the time because even if you're not privileged in other things, you probably are privileged in some things. Yeah. Well, thank you, David, for joining us. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's been so nice talking to you guys. Also, Mark, I am a massive Radio 4 fan. All I do is listen to Radio 4. I don't listen to music. So I've loved you for a long time. <laughs> oh, that's really lovely. I'd for never... longer than he's loved me, probably, actually. That's what I need. I, need. I mean, much as I love music, I need everyone to abandon music and just listen to spoken radio. <laughs> oh, that's really... Oh, look at you cheesing away. Yeah, great note for me to end on, actually. Yeah. Exactly. I'm starting to think that it, the right man did win the Bake Off. <laughs> <laughs> David, where can people find you? I am Nomad Baker David 
on Instagram and I think the same on Twitter. I would pretend I'm on TikTok. I've got a TikTok blue tick that Michael doesn't have, but I don't do anything on it. So it's a bit pointless. Oh, so. His face is sour, <laughs> even sourer than when you said that you love me. I don't care about the Bake Off thing, but the TikTok thing. Oh, this has been a great couple of minutes <laughs> to close with. You have a TikTok that your partner runs. Yes, carry on. <laughs> that is true. That is true. And otherwise, you could probably just see me hanging out with Michael sometime on the street. Yeah. And you've got books. Buy his books. Yeah. I've got a kid's book. Buy the kid's book. And what's it called? My first cookbook. It's genuinely gorgeous, actually, for little kids to use and, oh, and play I should, with. I should get that. Yeah. He does put things like sweet potato in cakes, which I just don't understand. <laughs> but we'll cross that bridge another time. It would be boring if we all like the same, as my mum would say. <laughs> or would it be correct? We'll see. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Thank you so much, guys. And we'll see you soon. It's been a real pleasure. Yes. Thanks, David. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was David. We promised it would be good, didn't we? We always promise that, really, because we, we want to entice people from the intro into the actual podcast. It's a bit rude if you've asked someone to come on the podcast and you say it was bad. But we haven't had any of those yet. No, it would be awful if someone happened to listen to their own episode and we prefaced it by saying, got to admit, this is a bit of an off week. But you're right, it hasn't happened yet that we've had to sweep <laughs> one under the carpet like that. And it is still not happening this week, to be clear. And this next one is also wonderful. It is Ben Hurst. So we work with boys from age 11 or 12 upwards. And that's like, I think that's way too late. Like, yeah. if I'm being honest, like, it's an important piece of work and I'm really happy that we're doing it. But I think, like, when they get to us, they already have fully formed ideas of, like, what is okay and what is not okay for them to do. You're already having to challenge something, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it becomes, like, a lot of unlearning and a lot of deconstruction. Yes, not a bad conversation with Ben Hurst. In fact, a very interesting one. And we spoke a lot about what we can do to help younger, especially men, uh, negotiate this world they're in, which was really genuinely fascinating, I thought. Yeah, Ben is a specialist in the education of, uh, well, young men specifically, and in trying to address some of the toxic behaviours that develop in young kids, especially young men. So it was, again, something different for us, really. We hadn't talked about most of that stuff before, I don't think. It's a slightly more direct discussion of manhood than some of them. Yes, and also he was um, beautiful, which helped all I, of that. I thought you were well. going to... I knew you were going to bring that up, and well, you have a point, it, yes. It's fair to be brought up, I think. Um, we've had some lovely messages come through from all of our uh, lovely, lovely listeners, but we've also had three new people join our Patreon. So we'd like to say a massive hello to Lisa, Levi, and Tim. Thank you so much. We weren't sure what to call you, whether you are Patreons or patrons. Shall we just go with pals? I believe that the website is called Patreon... But the, the people on it are called patrons, as in as in the original word patron, really, a, a supporter of an art or, yeah, a customer. How can people join our Patreon if they would like to become Patreon, pa- patrons? <laughs> mm, it is fiddly, and you wonder why they didn't just call the thing Patreon, but maybe that name had been taken. Well, what they can do, Michael, is go to, uh, now, is it a case of patreon.com slash mankindpodcast? I think it is. It is it? It, it's exactly a case of that, actually. You've got that It's a, it's a right. clear case of that, yeah. <laughs> um, and then once they're there, they're given a, a sort of selection of options, all of which get you the same rewards, though, because that's the sort of egalitarian guys that we are. <laughs> egalitarian guys, you know us. And there's lots of lovely content on there. We've got some extra bits from the different podcasts that you might not necessarily hear if you were just listening to it normally, as well as some little bits of backstage. Stage. Uh, Mark calls it behind the curtain, but I'm not sure there's much of a curtain, really, considering how we work. We don't shroud ourselves in mystery, no. But for completists, there is just a tiny bit of extra stuff. And that will keep on coming as well, because there's no shortage of outtakes. You can say that about us. <laughs> We've recorded this outro four 
14 times. We had some lovely messages come through, like I said. Uh, lovely message from Jay on Instagram, who said that he'd recently discovered us and that he came from Canada, which is exciting to be listened to in a completely different time zone. That's quite exciting. Yeah, well, that happens quite a bit to us, actually, because we've got our, there's some Americans, a couple of Australians. There's, I would like to say there is no time when someone is not listening to The Sun Never Sets Upon the Mankind Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we were also reached out to by... The, we murdered their name last last week, but they got in touch to us, and it's a really lovely message. So we're going to read out the whole thing, but we might take it in turns by paragraph, um, just to keep it fresh for you guys, you know, hip and cool. They said they've been listening to the podcast since the very first episode, and they've been meaning to reach out for weeks. But we made the first move by uh, trying to pronounce their name, so uh, it's now or never. And they found the podcast through being a fan of mine, obviously Mark obviously on Bake Off Um, and they said that that season had some of their favourite examples of contemporary masculinity so they knew they wouldn't be disappointed which is lovely to hear actually considering we've just spoken to David Um, they weren't familiar with Mark before tuning in but from the moment sorry carry on (laughs) but from the moment he opened up about his mortality related anxieties they were won over and to say they also struggle with that would be a massive understatement so for a moment there they felt less alone in it and they said thank you for making that podcast that's nice, isn't it? Feeling less alone is very much what we w- would wish everyone to get out of this. Uh, they go on to say, as a trans-masculine and non-binary person, I have both uh, an outsider and an insider perspective on masculinity. It comes more naturally to me than femininity, but on the other hand, being a man seems just as far away and foreign as being a woman does. Sometimes the more masculine I feel my body looks, the more comfortable I am with feminine clothing. And So it's wonderful to hear perspectives from people on all sides of the spectrums of gender, identity and expression. I would also love to hear some more international voices. I was born and raised in Russia, but have since moved a few times and now reside in Berlin, in the heart of what Russian propaganda sometimes adorably refers to as gay Europa, and very much loving it. I'd like to go to Gay Roper. That sounds fab. Yes, I think Michael would also like more international guests if it involved trips to Gay Roper. (laughs) But we'll see what we can do. Um, Thank you very much. It's worth saying they finished the the piece by saying with kindness before their name which is a lovely thing to send uh, as a it's better than regards isn't it it's quite a lot better than regards especially because it chimes with the name of the podcast so uh, all future correspondents to end with with kindness please thank you yes yes please and if, and if you would like to correspond with us we are at mankind podcast on social media and our email address is mankindpodcast at gmail.com and as mark said you can support us at patreon.com forward slash mankind podcast got that all right didn't i you did and i would add that we also have a twitter which uh people sometimes interact oh, with yes. and stuff like that which again is mankind podcast we're really consistent twitter hand wise <laughs> our, our social media game is consistent you'd have to say that for us please do keep getting in touch we read all of them and um you know discuss them and are very happy when it happens yes we are very happy i don't quite know what else to say um <laughs> there was a nice little uh, chin rub then from the producer to mark uh, like a happy little dog that was lovely <laughs> yeah she likes to see me happy, happy every day. i nearly forgot to say lovely david from the bake off has a new lovely book out called good to eat which sounds a bit rude but that's okay and it comes out this week so do have a wee look for that if you'd like to and if not then don't that's also fine i mean you do you do you live your life i don't tell you what to do i can't believe that you can even make the phrase good to eat sound like it's rude unbelievable <laughs> well what might you eat mark mostly food michael maybe I'm an innocent. <laughs> Mostly, yeah, but that leaves room, doesn't it? Anyway, yeah, but buy, buy David's porn <laughs> book and we'll see you next week. Bye. Oh, I couldn't get that out. Bye. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.